You're in the water loop. Waterloop is a nonprofit media outlet made possible in part by a grant from Springpoint Partners. Visit waterloop.org for all of our content. This is Waterloop episode number 134, Utah's Cold Shoulder to Conservation. Utah is one of the driest states in the U.S., and the strain on water resources is growing as its population booms and climate change fuels aridification across the American West. But instead of aggressively advancing water conservation as other states are doing, Utah is brazenly rejecting those approaches and pursuing costly infrastructure projects like pipelines, a situation covered by Mark Olalde, a reporter for ProPublica. In this episode, Mark discusses his story, the outsized influence of water districts and lobbyists on state policy, and examples of how Utah has shunned conservation measures such as demand management native landscaping, and water loss tracking. You're in the Waterloop. Welcome to Waterloop. This is Travis, joined for this episode by Mark Olalde. He is a reporter for ProPublica, and he wrote a story that caught my attention about uh, water conservation in Utah. And the headline of his story is, Why the Second Driest State Rejects Water Conservation. Mark, thanks for coming on the podcast. Of course. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, it really caught my attention because, uh, as we know, there is a lot of uh, water scarcity across the American West in the Colorado River Basin and California and all across the region, getting worse, exacerbated by climate change. You know, it's it's hard to call it drought anymore. It's more like aridification, right? Um, and we, we, I, see a lot of movement in states to... Uh, towards water efficiency, towards water conservation, putting a lot of measures in place. Uh, so it really jumps out that that's not the case in Utah. Um, maybe before we dive into details, could you kind of give the the bottom line, your, your nut graph, if you will, of, of what the story's about? Well, absolutely. Uh, you know, the story kind of set out to answer this question of in a time of climate change, in a time of, you know, large scale aridification, you know, as, as like you mentioned, some people are calling it, why is Utah somewhat of an outlier? Why is Utah not doing more? You know, why do we see all these news stories come out of, of you know, Vegas for, you know, making every blade of grass kind of public enemy? And yet we're not, we're just not seeing that in Utah. So the idea was, let's, let's kind of dig into that question. Let's figure out what's going on with regards to policy, lobbying, et cetera, there. And, um, you know, what emerged was, was obviously what we'll talk about, which was a state that, uh, a picture of a state that, you know, understands these problems are real, but uh, doesn't seem to uh, to want to fight too hard yet to uh, to solve them. Mm. All right, I guess I guess we'll we'll dive into this here. Maybe you could give a picture of kind of the water situation in Utah. What's it look like as far as you know their resources, supply, demand, consumption? Well, water, uh, you know, Utah's got some of the highest the highest water use because it's got, uh, in part, because it's got some of the lowest water rates. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there there are, are obviously other factors kind of pushing high water use. But what we do know is that if you look at metrics like GPCD gallons per capita per day consumption, uh, Utah is is you know right at the, among the highest users in the uh, in the country. Obviously, a lot of Utah's water use 
is agricultural, just like anywhere in the West. Um, I focused a bit more on the municipal um, because there are just a lot more, there's a lot more movement there um, for, you know, for kind of individual uh, policy decisions in terms of, of water, uh, you know, water conservation. Uh, but Utah's not doing great. I mean, it's 20 years into drought, just like, you know, much of the, the West and Southwest. The Great Salt Lake is at its lowest, you know, recorded point. Um, which is leading, you know, which means water policy questions are leading to air pollution and things like that from more exposed uh, toxic dust in that lake bed. You know, so uh, it's, it's, there are a lot of downstream impacts of, of the high water, high water use and low water conservation in Utah. Uh, one thing we, we try to do to, to kind of dig into this question of how is Utah, you know, different or, or, or what makes it unique in the southwestern and the western water world, was look at this question of of uh, turf removal, kind of lawn and other grass removal programs, which have become a very popular way of of reducing that demand side for water. And uh, you know what we found was comparing uh, Utah's population centers to you know Las Vegas, Clark County, and Nevada uh, was we found that that Vegas had removed. Um, you know, about 200 million square feet of turf and spent about $258 million, um, at least as of a couple months ago, to, to, to do that removal. And now they're paying up to $3 a square foot to remove more grass. Um, but you compare that to what's happening in the largest water district in, um, in Utah, in the Wasatch Front, uh, which is the Central Utah Water Conservancy District, they just launched a program last year. Um, at the time that I wrote the story a few months ago, they had only removed, I believe it was uh, 15,400 square feet. Mm. So, you know, just pales in comparison. And, you know, we're paying up to um, uh, up to a little more than a dollar, you know, so more than half less than, uh, than what Vegas was willing to pay per square foot. So just kind of really paled in comparison. And that was just one uh, example in the broader demand reduction uh, world. But uh, what we found is essentially Utah is years behind other states in terms of implementing water conservation policies. Uh, you know, I, I figured that to do this story, you're looking at those other states, you're looking at the types of practices they put in. You just mentioned that that great example of what they're doing in Vegas with turf removal. How would you describe the more typical approach by states out there in the West, you know, Colorado, Arizona, where you are, New Mexico? What, what's their more typical approach you see to this demand reduction conservation issue? I, I think typical... Typical is kind of difficult in, in 2022 in, in the West, but yeah, but I, you know, I think what would be typical is you address uh, you address the low hanging fruit, right? You address turf removal, um, you implement you know low flow mandates on toilet, showers, sinks, things like that, um, and really you just don't have kind of backwards policies. You know, a lot a lot of uh, uh, cities, municipalities in Utah right now still have mandates that you have to have grass. So we're not even talking, for, you know, saying you can't have grass. We're saying you have to have grass. Mm. And so that's a fight that's going on currently in the the, the almost finished 2022, um, you know, general session in the Utah legislature. And it's there. There was an attempt to write a preemption saying. Uh, municipalities, HOAs, et cetera, 
can't mandate grass. They have to give another thing that that landscaping can be, whether that's xeriscaping, um, you know, or any other option. And I think it's going to fail. I think that that bill is not going to this year. And it's not like that's some super progressive idea saying you can't mandate grass. You must allow a private landowner or, you know, homeowner to put a cactus if they want in their, in their front yard instead of turf. Um, and I, I, you know, at this point there's a little bit left in the session, but that bill has been so far blocked. Um, mm. So that's kind of just to show how different Utah is. And on the other end of the, the kind of extreme, you know, in my last, uh, my last job, I was reporting in Southern California. I was reporting on the salt and sea. And I'm sure your, your viewers and listeners are, you know, kind of are aware of that issue. But to get within its, its Colorado River allocation, California took a massive cut, um, knowingly created a massive public health crisis around the, around the salt and sea um, because taking that cut to its allocation meant the salt and sea was going to largely dry up leading to toxic dust, um, kind of what we're seeing around the Great Salt Lake as well. Um, but they decided that it was better to spend billions of dollars to try to address that public health issue that they created um, so they could get their Colorado River allocation down kind of back within their means. So, you know, if, if you want to see a, a, a super aggressive example of what some places are willing to do, you know, those are the lengths that, that other states are, are willing to go at this point in time. Mm. So Utah is not pushing toward water conservation. What are they pushing toward then? I think this is something your, your story goes into in great detail and kind of unveils what, uh, what levers are being pulled and pushed there. Yeah, you know, it's still, it's still a small community of kind of water managers. You know, they're, they're called the water buffaloes. Uh, you know, it's kind of the old timey phrase that's still, still kicking around. And they seem to really like big water infrastructure projects. They're still pushing for a couple. Uh, the two I highlighted in my story were the Bear River Development Project, which would take water from the Bear River along the uh, where Idaho, Wyoming, and Utah uh, kind of their borders and bring that down towards the population centers around the Wasatch Front. Um, the problem there, though, is that the Bear River is the main uh, tributary feeding into the Great Salt Lake. And so there's all of this attention being paid to the decline of the Great Salt Lake at the moment. Um, you know, but but I think the kind of obvious question there is if you're going to address the decline of the Great Salt Lake, how can you also even consider taking water from, you know, from its main uh, its main tributary? The the other uh, project I looked into was the Lake Powell pipeline, uh, which you know, could arguably be the most controversial water project uh, in the West, you know, right now. And that's the proposal to build a um, 100 mile plus pipeline um, from uh, Lake Powell behind the Glen Canyon Dam and bring it along the Utah-Arizona border uh, to, uh, to the St. George area um, as that area just kind of booms at the moment. Um, and that would bring roughly 85,000 acre feet a year at, at its, at its peak um, to that area, you know, but that's pulling water from the main stem of the Colorado river. That's pulling water from one of the two, uh, you know, major res reservoirs on the river that are, um, you know, that are already shrinking. You know, we see the bathtub ring photos all the time. And so, 
that project actually, which which still could be years away if it ever happens, uh, that project actually already has some pretty stiff opposition from the other basin states. Uh, the six other basin states actually came together not that long ago uh, and jointly signed a letter to the uh, to the um, the Department of the Interior to kind of suggest, hey, if you permit this project, you know, you might have to see a lawsuit from from the rest of us. And the basin states can't typically decide what they're going to order for lunch. And so at this point, if they're deciding that they don't like this project, all all of them together, except for Utah, that kind of shows some some pretty big animosity, I think, right there. So uh, the the larger projects that are being pushed by Utah's kind of water power players are are not uh, are not without their opposition uh, at this stage. So these these power players, the people that are are kind of pushing these decisions, are really influencing them. You know, your story gets at how uh, they have tremendous influence in the state legislature and, and in the state government and where a lot of these calls are ultimately made, where you know, obviously laws and stuff are coming out of the state legislature. Uh, so it, it might not have the state's best interest in mind here. These these seem to be people that, that profit, if you will, from some of these water infrastructure projects. Is that is that kind of what the, the story gets into? Is that the scenario that's happening there? You know, I got to be honest, the question of motivation is 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 still a bit unclear. There's not bags of cash being being handed around here and, and water in the West, as you know, can be ideological and you have a position and you're not going to back down on that. You know, you've made your name fighting for a project or what have you. So, you know, there is there is a lot of that going on. But there is a so the, the way that the that these kind of major power players tell the story is that the uh, the last governor, the former governor of Utah, actually sat them down a few years ago uh, and and said, "Hey, we're growing quickly. Our economy is booming. Our population is booming. Um, you know, water will not be the limiting factor. So you need you all need to figure that out and make sure you know we do not run out of water." And they kind of took that as their mandate. And so, you know, hence was born this group called PREP60, which stands for kind of preparing for 2060 when the population is expected to uh, to double. And so, you know, they're saying, how do we make sure that this request for water, you know, is, is, is heated? Uh, and they believe, they firmly believe that it cannot uh, be achieved by conserving water alone, that it has to be achieved by unlocking kind of new water, you know, through these, through these projects. Whereas on the other side of this debate, you know, you, you have conservationists, environmentalists, tribes, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, saying, you know, new water in, in this day and age is not really something that, that the state's going to get, or legally the state might not even be entitled to new water. Um, but what, we, what I did find in, in reporting this is that there is a ton of, of overlap between kind of some of the state structures and uh, and some of these these so-called water buffaloes, um, these water district general managers, their lobbyists, et cetera. Um, and so they do hold a ton of sway. Uh, the Colorado River uh, kind of negotiating team from the uh, from Utah is now headed up by Gene Shawcroft, who's also the general manager of the largest water district in the state who also has been sitting on the uh, legislative committee 
um, that is in charge with uh, with advancing water bills. And so, I mean, I think right there is a telling example. You know, you've got one person who's wearing all these different hats, and also you've got a you know a legislative committee that has non-elected officials sitting on it. They're not voting members, but they have a seat at that table, which is not how it works in other legislative bodies. And so, you know, it's it's there's there's a lot of of overlap in this small community that kind of decides where the state goes and a lot of its water policy. Yeah, I mean, you you mentioned uh, lobbyists. You know, you said that there. Um, who are they representing? These these lobbyists. Well, you've it's it's interesting because I you know I kind of keyed in on this this specific lobbyist um, as as kind of a case study. Uh, this this gentleman named Fred Finlinson, who spent you know is a Republican who spent years in the legislature was a was a, a you know a powerful legislator, a state senator. Um, and is actually now married to uh, another powerful former legislator. legislator uh, and she is the assistant general manager at the Central Utah Water Conservancy District. He is the lobbyist for that water district and all of the other main water districts in the state. Um, and so, you know, like I said, it's this small group that has worked together for years. Um, they're They're pretty much all part of the kind of Republican establishment um, in in Utah, and so uh, part of the story was frankly just trying to fight for a little bit of transparency in how, how these decisions were even made. Yeah, absolutely. I think you've talked a little bit already about uh, ways that some of the water conservation measures have been rejected, some of the projects that get supported instead, like this Lake Powell pipeline concept. Um, could you talk maybe about some of the the negative impacts of pursuing infrastructure over conservation in Utah and not just within Utah, but to the neighboring states as well? Well, absolutely. I mean, at this point, you know, it's a zero sum game, right? On the, on the Colorado, it's not like we've got just an abundance, a huge excess of water there. The river, you know, doesn't flow to the Sea of Cortez, hasn't in years, uh, you know, so we, we use all of it. Um, I, I think that the main loss here is that there's a lot a lot of water that the state could have if it wanted to conserve a little bit, if it wanted to spend money there. Um, it's not, you know, it's, it's impossible to tell right now whether conservation alone would truly be enough to, to satiate Utah's growth. Um, you know, I don't have an answer for that, but I do know that there's just a ton of water that they're, that they're not saving like they could be. Um, I think a, a great example of that was this fight over secondary water metering. And this is, I guess you could call it a success story now because there is a bill to say that um, this outdoor water in the state um, needs to have meters on it now um, because studies have shown that putting meters on this water, you know, leads to massive savings. I mean, 25% reduction almost in outdoor water use uh, if you just put a meter on, on these outdoor kind of outdoor connections. And this, this fight to include these meters, get this essentially, you know, cheap water savings uh, was championed by conservative Republicans for several years and lobbied against and, you know, didn't pass. And it's finally kind of looks like it's going to happen this year. And now it's being championed, you know, it's being held up um, by the establishment. Utah is this big, great thing they're doing. But they're only doing it because the feds are paying for it. They're doing it through 
you know, uh, COVID-19 recovery, you know, funding, um, you know, from the Biden administration, it, it's, it's not like it's something that they, they would have allowed to happen a couple of years ago. So there's, there's just all these opportunities for water savings that are, you know, that we're just kind of watching flow by um, that could, that could increase Utah's water resiliency, that could decrease kind of per capita usage, that could potentially decrease uh, some of this animosity among the states as they negotiate over the future of the Colorado River, um, and and not really great reasons for why some of these conservation measures are are not you know are not approved and not pushed forward. You know, so advocates for water conservation, environmentalists, uh, you know, others have not been happy with. The direction. I think that that kind of was touched on. You you can touch on that more. I'm also curious about the reaction to your story, right? You're putting you're putting some of these these inner workings out there through through your your great reporting, um, and kind of exposing the way some of this works. So I'm I'm curious uh, to to hear about the reaction to your piece as well. Yeah, I think a little bit of the reaction was kind of, you know, this was an open secret. Um, you know, I did not discover that water policy in Utah is, um, you know, is largely controlled by the, the, the powers that be the, the, you know, um, the more conservative aspects of the GOP, the, uh, this kind of water districts and the water general managers. Um, you know, I, I but I think there was some surprise at, at, some of what I was able to find, kind of the, the brashness, I would say, of some of the um, some of the communications around this, some of the attitude um, that that's taken around this. You know, the outgoing. Um, you know, I was able to get access to uh, to a lot of internal communications um, between lobbyists and general managers of the main water districts, um, and you know, so we found. We found examples of, uh, you know, how kind of they treated water policy. Um, you know, there was a the general manager of the Washington County Water Conservancy District, kind of the, some of the main proponents for the Lake Powell pipeline out in the St. George area. You know, I found emails from them uh, for this general manager's retirement party saying, you know, congrats on a job well done for doing your best to cover the red sands of Washington County with water. Uh, which I think kind of was telling in, in, you know, the question of, well, should you be covering the sands of the desert and water? Is there a better way that you could be doing this? Should this kind of policy making be praised? Um, and just how, how connected uh, some of these players were, like I said, the husband and wife team who are some of the most powerful people uh, in Utah water. I think the, the level of that connection uh, was interesting. Um, you know, I found that, um, that the connection between the lobbying firm and uh, the wife and this husband and wife team was was scrubbed from uh, a, a state government website after our uh, after um, conservationists started asking questions about it, um, you know, leading to kind of questions of why that was allowed to happen. So, you know, I think I think the kind of proving the level of of influence um, certainly uh, certainly raised some eyebrows in. Uh, uh, in response to the story. Yeah, sure. So, uh, you know, I wanted to ask about kind of the current 
trajectory of water management in Utah. You know, you mentioned that this secondary, you know, metering is, is probably going to go through, but, um, what, what does kind of the near future look like more, more of the same or, you know, yeah. What's your, what's your read on that? It's, it's a mixed bag. Um, there are some, you know, the drought has gotten bad enough that even the climate, de- climate change denying Utah legislature is acknowledging, um, you know, there's still, there's still a lot of calls to pray for this to just be fixed. And I, and I don't want to take aim at religion, but I would say that, you know, we need a little bit more down to earth solutions as well. And so it's kind of disheartening to see that there's a lot of emphasis paid to those types of solutions as opposed to more like let's put meters on water connections. Um, there were a few bills that I, I kind of pulled out when thinking about this question uh, that are currently up for debate. Like I mentioned, water metering looks like it will go forward and that will lead to a ton of water savings. Uh, but again, that had to be paid for by the feds before the state was okay with it. Um, this idea of halting HOAs, cities, towns, et cetera, from, um, from mandating lawns when you're living in an arid climate, um, it's good that that's gotten some traction this year, but even with how bad the drought is, how hot things are, how dry things are, that's still, like I said, looks like it might not pass. It's still got a little bit of time, but right now it looks like it might not pass. Um, there is another bill that has been put forward by a Republican in the House uh, to uh, to mandate some kind of water cuts uh, and more water conservation efforts specifically at state buildings. And that looks like it likely will pass. Uh, that won't make a huge dent in like overall water usage, but that will finally show some leadership from the state saying, hey, we're doing this at state buildings. Maybe let's do it at LDS wards. Maybe let's do it at schools. Maybe let's do it at residential. So that is that is a positive step. There was a bill on in-stream water flows um, that, uh, that passed again, a House Republican there. Um, and that's saying, you know, let's allow uh, kind of beneficial use uh, so, you know, we can keep water in uh, streams. We don't have to use it. We don't have to dump it on a field that we're not going to harvest just so we don't lose our water rights. Maybe it can go to help save the Great Salt Lake, et cetera. Um, you know, and and so there there's, but then at the same time, one of the bills that I followed super closely in my story, uh, this, this, it was called HB 40 from Representative Ms. Melissa Ballard, a Republican in North Salt Lake, um, that was going to mandate more um, auditing, more studies of leaks and other water loss in uh, kind of in water systems. Uh, Utah does a terrible job of knowing where it loses water. Um, Systems lose up to 10% or maybe more, who really knows of their water um, due to leaks and other kind of unmeasured uses. And, and so uh, Representative Ballard has for the past couple of years been pushing for a bill to say, guys, let's, let's start using industry standard leak detection. Uh, let's at least know where the leaks are. And then let's, let's make some plans to patch up these pipes or whatever, you know, however you need to address the leaks as kind of a common sense. Let's just keep the water in the pipes uh, and not lose this water that's been treated, that's been put in the system, et cetera. That failed. Uh, the Prep 60 crew came in and rewrote it. 
Uh, it failed again when, when rural water districts opposed it. She brought it up again this year uh, for a third time uh, it failed. And this wasn't some, you know, huge draconian effort. This was a let's figure out what water we're losing to leaks and where. And even that couldn't pass on the third attempt in the midst of everything that's going on. So there is definitely an urgency in the Capitol that wasn't there uh, a few years ago. There's definitely an acknowledgement of how bad the problem has been getting. Um, And there's definitely some steps being taken. But, you know, when we see Vegas just declaring war on grass, we're not fully seeing that level of commitment in Utah yet. Yeah. Yeah, very, very interesting. Well, I um, I really appreciated your story. I'm glad I had a chance to catch up with you and, and talk about it a little bit. Uh, it's just important stuff out there to, to have this kind of look at what's going on with water in this, uh, this day and age. So, Mark, thank you so very much. Of course. Thanks so much for having me. Waterloo. Thank you for listening to this episode. And thanks again to Springpoint Partners for grant funding. Remember, you can support the Waterloop nonprofit media outlet at patreon.com slash the Waterloop. To find all episodes, sign up for email updates, and connect on social media, visit waterloop.org. Waterloop, Waterloop, Waterloop.